0: Strong Women, Smart Policy, Solid Theology, and No Apology. This is Concerned Women Today with Penny Young Nance, CEO and President of Concerned Women for America, the largest public policy organization for women in the nation. Now in the wake of the retirement of Justice Stephen Breyer, Biden has appointed Ketanji Brown Jackson to the court. Joining me to unpack this nomination and the confirmation process is an expert on the topic, and I am welcoming to the show, Carrie Savarino. Carrie, you and I have had an incredible journey together as we worked very closely um, on the last three appointments, the Trump appointments, and you as the head of um, JCN, I'd love for you to kind of give um, our listeners, a little bit of your background, and then let's talk about what we've experienced. And I'd love for you to kind of draw a dotted line between what we experienced in working on the nominations of the Trump appointees versus what we're seeing now with the Biden administration.
1: Yeah, well, it's so great to be here, Penny. Real, I appreciate uh, you welcoming me on your show. And um, you know, this is 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 a really important moment for the nation. It's, it's one that we aren't focusing on the same way as maybe we would because there's so much else um, that's going on in the news from skyrocketing inflation to the chaos that's going on in Europe right now. So, But we have to remember, this is a seat on the Supreme Court of the United States of America. This is someone who will sit for life to be one of the final votes, the last word on how our constitution and our federal laws are interpreted. That is a huge deal. This is someone who will outlive President Biden's uh, time in office. Mm-hmm. Probably a lot of the senators who will vote uh, on this nomination. This, it will They'll be there longer. You know, uh, Ketanji Brown-Jackson is in her early 50s. She could easily serve for 30 years. We know that uh, Justice uh, Breyer, who she's replacing, is in his 80s. So um, this is a big deal. What we have normally seen in these confirmation processes for the last few is you've seen the complete... Uh, I guess TV it, it, made for TV movie kind of craziness that can come right. come on. And the the Kavanaugh confirmation was the craziest one, right? Where there's personal attacks and there's um you know this smear campaign that goes on. And I think we need to remember that this isn't this is incredibly important. We don't want to downplay the importance, but nothing is important enough to engage in those kind of tactics. So I think what we need to make sure we do here is. Focus really intensely on the issues, because they are incredibly important. This is a, a historic event to have a Supreme Court nomination, but never go down that road of the politics of personal destruction. From all I know, Katanji Brown Jackson's a lovely person. I'm, you know, none of none of my criticism of her is to her as a person. It really is to say it as to her judicial philosophy and, and the kind of justice um, right. she might make on the court. And that's where we have to always keep it.
0: Well, and listen, we'll go to that in just one second, but I but I do want to take a moment as uh, head of Judicial Crisis Network, and really as someone who is an attorney and a clerked actually uh, at the Supreme Court for Justice Thomas. You've seen a lot, you've seen it all, and and again, as I was saying, you know, us working together uh, on Justice Gorsuch, G- Justice Kavanaugh, and Amy Coney Barrett's nomination and subsequent confirmation was very eye opening, and I think we we sort of. Past this, the, we crossed the Rubicon <laughs> on Justice Kavanaugh in a way that I have never seen. The the politics of personal destruction played out on a human being in, in Washington before. And so in the middle of that crazy, all the crazy, at a time that Concern Women for America, we literally had to have armed guards, armed guards to go up on Capitol Hill And to advocate for our position for his confirmation, because there was so much money from the left running around town and bringing in people who, frankly, were already very hurt individuals. And being told that a rapist was going to be on the Supreme Court, even though all of it was untrue. um, It it just is something that, it, it just stands in such deep contrast that what we're seeing today, and you said it, we want to concentrate on the person on whether or not the person is um is has the right judicial philosophy whether they're qualified go through going through the process so let's talk about the judge who's now sits on the dc circuit court of appeals this is new kbj right we, we've done acb this is kbj she obviously is a woman who is very intelligent she is a woman who has great experience, has done some amazing things in life. But I'm just wondering as we all kind of go through her record and, and see what she's done in the past and read her writings, what, what are the red flags? What are the things that kind of jump out that you're hoping will really get teased out in the hearings further?
1: Yeah, so her, her most relevant background, so she's got, she worked at a law firm, she did spend a lot of time doing defense work, public defense work. Um, but her most right. relevant. Right. She would be history, the first.
0: Uh, would she be the first defense attorney on the Supreme Court? Certainly, the only one sitting. I think the only
1: one sitting, but I feel like it's hard to imagine she'd be the first. Right. Um, but I'd have to. I'd have to look back at history on that. Um, but she. She did spend eight years before her. Currently, she's a, ju- a judge at the D.C. Uh, Appellate Court, the Federal Appeals Court in D.C. She spent t- uh, eight years though as a district judge in D.C. The district judges are the ones who hear the trials. Um, and in that time, she heard about 10, 12 different trials. It's, it's pretty relatively low number for a district judge, but that may just be because she's in a district, the District of D.C., that doesn't have as much criminal trials, because those are tend to be held, held at the, the D.C. courts, not the federal courts, and that, that deals with more regulatory affairs. So that was her main judicial experience. She was just confirmed in this past year to sit in the D.C. Circuit Court of Appeals. That would have been the court that actually reviewed her work when she was in the district court. So she has much more limited experience as an appeals court judge. Um, my biggest concern, which well, by I have
0: the D.C. Circuit Court of Appeals, correct me if I'm wrong, tends to oversee more administrative matters, right?
1: That's right. That's right. Because a lot of cases, you're if you're filing a case against something the EPA does or, you know, the FAA or the all the alphabet soup of right. different regulatory agencies, they're all located in D.C. Right. And so they get they have they, they do get some, you know, criminal cases and some other cases, but the vast majority of it is going to be regulatory um, work. So that that so, is a, a key. Thing. Uh,
0: my point is that experience is not necessarily indicative of the kind of work or the kind of cases that she will see on the Supreme Court.
1: Oh yeah, the Supreme Court. You see everything. You see a whole lot of everything because they have every circuit comes together to, to um, be appealed ultimately to that court. Um, but the, you know, every every judge is going to have their own individual area, and they're going to all have to effectively become a generalist when they get onto the Supreme Court because that they that's just where everything ends up at the end of the day. Um, well, well, a district judge, she had an unusually high number of reversals. So, you know, after, after someone appeals your case, the, the court above you can decide whether they reverse it. And about 10% of the time, she was reversed by the, uh, the appeals court in D.C., that's unusually high. And that in and of itself doesn't worry me because you think, okay, maybe maybe this is someone who's in a crazy circuit. You know, if, if I was a judge of the ninth circuit, I'll blast right. it. They're totally out to lunch. I would say it's probably a badge of honor to be have high, high rever- a high reversal. Right, that's right. What worries me about some of her reversals is she's been reversed by a liberal cir- circuit court. And this is a court that Obama nominated several, I think four different people to, a, 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 on top of the previous Democrat nominees that were there. Um, she, it's a liberal court she has been reversed in many cases for going beyond her jurisdiction as a judge. So for example, there was a case having to do with immigration law, having to the Department of Homeland Security's uh, decisions about who was gonna be eligible for expedited removal. She struck down the, the Department of Homeland Security's decisions about that, kind of spent a lot of time in the opinion, talking about the benefits of immigration, going off on this kind of policy tangent, which isn't really the judge's job. It's not their job to decide is this good or bad policy. But then she, uh, she said they, the, the DHS can't do this. And ultimately was, was reversed by a court, including one of the most liberal judges on that court, that t- saying that actually, this is something that the statute says is entirely in his discretion. You don't get to second guess that. And there are other cases that fall into that type of category where it's like, this is not the ju- judge's job. And so that really concerns me in terms of, do you oh, recognize that's, the That's limits,
0: activism, the proper right? That's, that's what we're talking about when we talk about judicial activism, where you're going mm-hmm. above and beyond what your actual role in the court is, to, is actually supposed to be in order to make law
1: right, right. so is this someone and and you know there's there's one potential for doing that when you're on the the DC district court and she, this happened with a lot of Trump era regulations, executive orders, that kind of thing. but if you're on the Supreme Court your your playground is the country you've got it you've got a whole lot of potential for mischief there. and so we'd have to be doubly sure. That this is someone who understands their limits. And then my, this goes to my deepest concern, really. And this goes to what is her judicial philosophy. There was an exchange when she, you know, just in the last year, she had her hearing to go on the DC Court of Appeals. and uh, And Senator Cruz asked her a question. He asked her about the concept of the living constitution, this is the idea that the constitution isn't really just written once and for all, and we have to follow exactly what the rule, the, the words say, but that it might evolve and develop. And, you know, we, the judge gets to breathe new life into it sort of with each right. generation, right? And he wanted to know if she believed in that. And her answer was really sh- stunning because she said, well, I haven't really had the opportunity as a district judge to have to resolve any major constitutional questions. So I haven't really developed a, a theory of how to interpret the constitution.
0: And I'm going. I don't think there's do a law off. student that doesn't yeah, have a theory to lawsuit, on how to, right. much less you know someone who actually is going to be a sitting judge. That is a that it, it's it's probably less than candid, shall we say, being gracious. <laughs>
1: well, you know, there, I, I feel like there's two options here. One is she really just hasn't thought about the Constitution. That would be you know I, I think probably. there are people who go through life not thinking about the Constitution. I would hope that someone who had already spent eight years as a federal judge with life tenure. Wouldn't be in that camp, right? Right. That's that would be really concerning if she just has failed to think deeply about the law. On the other side, maybe she's not being fully candid, and she just does. She knows that um, because she did. She did acknowledge that she was open to the idea of living constitutionalism at her D.C. District Court uh, Mm -hmm. hearings, you know, eight years previous. So now I think we've gotten to a point where. Everyone understands that most Americans really do want their judges to feel bound by the by the the words that are actually written in the Constitution. By right, the words, because
0: the founders gave us a way to amend the Constitution. Right? Absolutely. If if we don't still agree with what it says, there's a process to change it. But the process is not for nine robed human beings to just decide what they want it to say, depending on what the the cultural norms are of that moment. This is a much more robust and timeless document that, you know, our founders, very thoughtful people worked on and we all have agreed with now for, you know, over 200 years. So, you know, how is it that, you know, as a conservative, we recognize there's importance and there has to be a respect for our founding documents and for our constitution. Otherwise, it's just you know mayhem, as we've said.
1: Right, and, and for her to say, well, I, I just don't really have an approach to the constitution, It's it would be really striking to say, well, we're gonna, as, as senators, vote for someone for life tenure who was willing to tell us nothing mm-hmm. about how they're going to approach this. This, trying to figure out someone's judicial philosophy is the core of what we're doing when we're vetting someone for the court. And so I, I really hope that when we have the hearings and they're gonna start next week, you know, that these senators are going back and, and asking that question again and really digging in because you, you she can't just be allowed to say, well, I don't have a thought about that. It's like if someone's running for president and they say, I don't really have a thought about immigration. I don't really, you know, I don't have an opinion on energy. I don't have an opinion on guns. I don't have a, well, I'm sorry. I'm not going to vote for a black box. <laughs> right? Right, right And I think senators shouldn't be asked to vote for a black box either. So that's the other thing. Another thing that gives me real concern. And we know, you know, well, well, we might not have a good window into what her philosophy is, you can you can see the people on the left who are endorsing her, that feel like they do, you know, she's not going to talk to me and t- tell me what's in her heart of hearts, maybe. <laughs> but we know the people who did the vetting on the left. And we we know that, you know, there was a list of women, and even even within this, you know, the decision that, that the president was going to appoint a Black woman and only a Black woman to the court. There are a lot of different candidates he considered. And by all accounts, he chose the one who was the most clearly progressive, liberal, extreme. Mm-hmm. And so the people who were who were helping to um, feed names into this process and who are coming from the f- most extreme left group, these liberal dark money groups, who spent a billion dollars on Democrats' campaigns last year, or now it's two years ago, right? Mm-hmm. Um, They uh, they're the ones who will say we want to pack the court. They're the ones who are running ads trying to get Justice Breyer to step down from the court
0: who are just I cannot (laughs) believe he did it. I mean, if I had been him, I would have been like, you've got to be joking. I'm going to just to spite you, I'm staying (laughs) like that's so wrong.
1: I, I think he might have retired a year earlier if he if it hadn't been for the ratcheting up of this politics of this whole thing. But those same crazy hair on fire extremist groups are the ones who got her name on the list in the first place, and really raised her profile and then are, are have been her biggest advocates since so I think that also is a real real big red flag for me of like, well, even if I don't know what you believe, these guys have pledged this, they 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 are only going to appoint the most liberal people and and they they like you so that's a bad sign. President Biden said he would only appoint someone who, as he said, is willing to enforce the unenumerated rights in the Constitution. So the Constitution enumerates certain rights and certain jobs of the government, and then there's unenumerated rights. What are those? We don't know because they're not even in the Constitution. So he literally said he's going to only appoint someone. Yes, we do. We, enforce- they're
0: they're in they're in, in the Tenth Amendment. They're all consigned to the state you know, he,
1: he doesn't really know exactly <laughs> what he's talking about there yeah. surprise surprise but um if you know looking at where he's used those phrases before you can tell that basically for him it's code for mm-hmm. abor- abortion he thinks that abortion is somehow hidden in the, se- in, the in the ninth amendment yeah it, it's not there but but that's that's what he kind of thinks that's code for but so he's saying he wants someone who's going to enforce rights that are not actually written in the constitution that are in this kind of and again another mysterious black box mm-hmm. um that and if she if she passed that litmus test, that's also a really red, bad red flag for me.
0: Yeah, talk to me a little bit about when she wrote an amicus brief, and this is one of the ones that was, that, that when I saw that immediately, you know, it was a just a giant waving red flag for me. She's been an activist, right? She has worked with the abortion activist by writing their amicus brief, by volunteering with them, these are this is her people. When she wrote the amicus brief on buffer zones, can you tease that out a little bit for folks?
1: Yeah, this is when she was a associate at a law firm, and she had drafted an amicus brief on behalf of some pro-abortion groups in an abortion clinic buffer zone case. So this was a buffer zone around abortion clinics that would say that you, are, you know, you're not allowed to have. Some people there praying or trying to offer literature to women who are going by or things like that, um, and uh, they were. It, it, in this case, it seemed like it would applied. It applied to um, you couldn't speak in this area unless you were one of the clinic employees or agents, and so it was really a one sided uh, mm-hmm. limit on speech.
0: So a sidewalk counselor, for instance, couldn't get anywhere near the door, I and mean, we're not talking about blocking the door. We're just talking about no, no, no. being in this the vicinity. In the vicinity mm-hmm. to pray or to say, hey, across, and, this, and anybody that's actually been outside an abortion clinic with pro-life activists, this is how it works. You're there in a, because who wants to go next to somebody? It's scary, right? People are there mm-hmm. in bright t-shirts and moms and balloons and kids and smiling and say, hey, there's a place for free sonograms across the street. We have a bus here if you'd like to come do that. Or here's some information if you want other alternatives. They didn't want that. Yeah. In fact, they wanted them barred from the premises, nowhere near where someone could just peacefully pray and try to offer these women other options.
1: Right, and, and her amicus brief really betrayed a, um, a a particularly very hostile perception to those people in front of the clinics. Mm-hmm. I I don't know that she's ever been in front of one because what, what I, she described yeah. doesn't. It doesn't match up with what I have seen, which is one more what you have mm-hmm. uh, described. So she talked about people who were going to be uh, necessarily be accompanied by the threat of uh, physical intimidation, um, and so th- this is this is not actually what what we see there. So she, but she was. Definitely advocating for this, and many of those types of buffer uh, buffer zones have since been struck down, including uh, through a Supreme Court case in 2014. Uh, so, thankfully, because their constitution didn't ultimately win at the end of the day.
0: Yeah, mm-hmm. she. Yeah, because it's unconstitutional, and she was on the wrong side of that, as well as apparently many other cases. Um, but yeah, so it'll be interesting to see. You know, how this all plays out, I, I want to go back to one thing, and that is talking about, you know, so the pressure for, uh, for Justice Breyer to step down and her choice by uh, President Biden. I really think, and I, this is, you know, me just, you know, talking, but I, I really believe that the left recognizes that Joe Biden probably isn't going to be reelected. And there may be a Republican in the White House next. So they are swinging for the fences with this nominee. And you know what? If I were them, I would be doing the same. If I were counseling them, I would say, pick your the one you really want. You know, go hard because this is probably all you're going to get. And so I think understanding that, what I think is sort of the behind the scenes, it gives you a little bit of a picture into who she is. And that is a liberal activist Judge, so um, Carrie, tell me a little bit of wh- what's the process like. what What's happening right now, and you know, as we move forward, you know, what what how will this play out in the next few weeks, months?
1: Yeah. So, you know, her hearings start. So she was, she was nominated at the end of February and her hearings are going to be now at the end of March, starting on the 21st. It'll be four days of hearings. And then they're hoping to have her voted on before the Easter, the the court breaks for Easter recess. So they're going to have her done by mid, mid April. That is an incredibly aggressive timeline. Historically, the average is more like 65 days or something from nomination to finishing it. And so they're, they're really shortening it. Um, So this is going to, it's going to be interesting because we, what what Molly Hemingway and I learned when we wrote the book Justice on Trial and we talked, talked uh, about the Kavanaugh confirmation with you and all the people involved, which
0: is a great book, by the way, let me just say (laughs) it's still available to buy Concerned Women for America figures very prominently in that because we were so involved in that, but you, you gave a great behind the scenes for people that are still interested in, you know, sort of working through what all happened in that. I would highly recommend your book, Carrie.
1: Thank you. But so we saw how much prep went into Kavanaugh's getting ready for this hearings. And he had a lot more time. He was nominated in July and his hearings were in September. So that, that's a much more typical mm-hmm. time frame. in that amount of time. You've got to meet with a bunch of senators and that's what she's doing right now. And he had just these Binders, huge binders of just like Supreme Court cases, all of his old cases, because you have to be ready to answer a question on anything you've ever written, anything you've ever said, in any in any event or you know any speech you've ever given, um, and as well as any aspect of Supreme Court law. So she now is probably just completely cramming for this hearing, while simultaneously having to meet with as many senators as you possibly can fit in in that time. I'm not sure. That this is not just such an aggressive timetable that that's going to be physically impossible mm-hmm. for anyone
0: when to, to we're telling all the republicans you you've got to do your job right you know again we don't make stuff up we we want to actually give her a fair hearing she needs to have her day she needs to actually go through the process she deserves that but you shouldn't give her a pass either you need to actually work the process hear from her, meet with her, ask her the hard questions, get her on record in the hearing on everything that you possibly can do your job. And so I think that's playing out. And if it really does play out, I think you're right. I don't know how they're going to get it done by Easter.
1: Yeah. And, and, and I just, you know, you had a feel for her cause you got it. a lot of times they'll ask these really detailed questions and yes. you have to be able to go right to it. And, you know, traditionally what will happen is they'll ask a question. They want to know, say, Say how would you rule on, you know, such and such issue? And this the the potential justice will sit there and, and basically give a little mini law school lesson right. in that area to show that they're familiar with the law. At the end of the day, the major issues that are likely to come before this court, and there are some really major issues even coming up before the court next term, let alone, you know, coming up in the future, she's not going to be able to say how she would specifically vote on them. But you have to be confident that she understands the area of law. And so- I'm concerned that that necessarily you're going to end up hearing a lot of well, I, no comment. I, I just can't talk about that case. I can't talk about that case, and um, that that doesn't give the you know if you're if that's all we're going to hear, then why are we even having this hearing in the first place? So I think that's you're exactly right. There's going to have to be people making sure that um, they're holding their feet to the fire, and and look, you know, Republicans. When their nominees are put up, you can have someone who has a long record as a judge and it just is incredibly well respected, and you're still going to have the left with their hair on fire, going crazy, saying this person's uh, doesn't know what they're talking about, or this person's a, a complete radical. Um, we can't let them then pass off someone who truly is a radical right. as a moderate, because this is what Joe Biden's
0: right. <laughs> administration has been doing. That's what they always they do. Cast him off as a moderate. Yes, She's yes. Like, oh, Nothing no, no, to see. No. Nothing yeah. to see. She's was a moderate. They, well, they said that about Joe Biden as well, right? right. Do you remember how moderate right. Joe Biden was supposed to be? I mean, mm. you know, what his early days as a senator in Delaware is not at all indicative of who, how he's governed as president for sure. And I think, you know, that we can't let them get away with sort of that fake notion.
1: No, and, and remember, Joe Biden, particularly when it comes to Supreme Court nominations, he has the worst track record of anyone on earth. Remember when things when things first started getting really crazy, and when concerned women for America first came on the scene, Robert Bork's confirmation. That's right, right. Guess who was Senate Judiciary Committee during Robert Bork confirmation, presiding over all of the chaos and all of the ridiculous, um, you know, smear against him and trying to misconcept mispresentation mis- of his whole, whole record. That was Joe Biden, mm-hmm. right. And the, you know, then the next really crazy touch point in our judicial confirmation process: Clarence Thomas's nomination, 1991. They they trot out Anita Hill again, all these sort of discredited claims, and they that turned into a media circus. Who was Judiciary Committee here presiding over all of that insanity? Joe Biden. So this is, you know, he's going to come up and say, "Oh, this is a perfectly moderate person. Why would you ever? Why would anyone want to question them? You must be racist if you don't want to vote for every single right. person I put up." That is so bizarre coming from someone who helped, who was just the ringleader of the Judicial Nomination Circus for half a century. Right, right. <laughs> and, now, and now here we are, right?
0: Well, and I have to bring up my friend Janice Rogers Brown, who could have been, you know, the first African-American Supreme Court justice. She was also D.C. Circuit Court of Appeals brilliant woman with just a personal history that is just so, so real, right? Her life experience, she's the daughter of an Alabama, the daughter and the granddaughter of Alabama sharecroppers. She worked her whole life, worked so hard and just has just a, she's an incredible um, teacher and spokesperson for the issue of, of uh, being a constitutionalist. Joe Biden's was specifically said to president bush do not appoint her i will not let her through so i just find it a little hypocritical that now suddenly he's you know he's he's the the you know the champion for african-american women when he had an opportunity to actually uh confirm an amazing african-american leader as someone that i would have been so proud to work to get confirmed
1: yeah, and to, and for her appointment to the D.C. Circuit, he did filibuster her. So he didn't even just threaten to; he actively did it. He tried to block her getting in the D.C. Circuit, and then she was considered being considered for mm-hmm. Justice O'Connor's the vacancy when Justice O'Connor oh, okay. retired. Mm-hmm. She would have been outstanding, you know. And, and yet, they I, I, part of the reason they steered away from her may easily have been the fact that Biden said, "Do not appoint her because we will filibuster," and that was not an empty threat. They knew that he meant business because he already had done so. You know, it's it's it's. Uh, yeah, I think he's he's trying to create this narrative of oh, I'm I'm just doing this about diversity. No, no, no. Because if you were, you wouldn't have you wouldn't
0: Let's
1: have try. attacked. Uh... Uh, Janice Rogers Brown, the way you did. You wouldn't have let them attack Clarence Thomas the way you did. They right. wouldn't have filibustered Miguel Estrada p- precisely because he was a Hispanic. They didn't want Republicans to have qualified potential Hispanic Supreme Court nominees. And so they wouldn't, didn't want him on the DC Circuit. There's a very long and sorted history well, <laughs> behind some of these claims.
0: Janice Rogers Brown, last time I saw her, was off the climb Mount Kilimanjaro, literally. Oh, so, wow. you know, she's an amazing woman and she, you know, she has had an amazing career. But Carrie, as As our listeners really think through this and we're moving into the hearings and as people are watching the hearings, um, can you tell just, you know, just the average listener who's, you know, in her car picking up her kids from school or whatever, why does this matter to her? Why should the average mom or dad around the country care so deeply, as deeply as we do about who sits on the Supreme Court? Why does it matter to them?
1: Yeah, so the Supreme Court is where the final questions on any matter of constitutional law or federal law get decided in this country. And unfortunately, as the gov- as the federal government has grown, because it's a lot bigger than it was anticipated to be by the framers, that scope has grown dramatically. So things that didn't used to be literally, you, you, may, you didn't have to make a federal case out of them, now, end up getting decided at the Supreme Court. So the Supreme Court ends up deciding a lot of things. Like we're we're seeing this the Dobbs case this term. You know, that was an issue that got brought into the Supreme Court. Abortion didn't used to be a federal issue. It used to be what, you know, the states could figure out the best solution for them. Right. And then the Supreme Court said, actually, we're going to we're going to make this a new constitutional right. Right. Not through the amendment process, just through the votes of five justices, right? But, but that that kind of thing happens. They're the ones responsible for ensuring whether they really do enforce the Second Amendment right to to bear arms. They're the ones who are determining: Do you really get to have free speech in the world of c- cancel culture? Uh, and what does that mean? You know, does everyone get to free, have free speech? Or like in that buffer, the abortion clinic buffer zone cases, does one side of the argument get freer speech than the other? Next term, there's some really important cases coming up. You know, dealing with with issues that are going to touch on all of us students for fair admissions versus harvard and versus university of north carolina he deals with whether universities can discriminate on the basis of race in their admissions now you would say hey, wait a minute i thought that was already illegal i thought that was like a long time ago but it but it turns out it's that that's still are universities who are doing this and so that if you look at in print now it's kind of it's switched characters. So different in different times in history, it was discriminated against black students for a long time. Harvard was discriminated against Jewish students, and now when you look at the statistics, they're discriminated against Asian students. Mm-hmm. It doesn't matter who you discriminated against; it's wrong, right? So the but the Supreme Court is going to decide whether that really is something that we can we can still continue to permit, or whether that's going to be continued wrong to be to be viewed as. Wrong and not allowed. There's another case, and this is just over and over. We see these cases dealing with free speech and freedom of religion, and whether individuals can be forced to support um, positions they they don't agree with in their creative pursuits. So we saw this with Masterpiece Cake Shop, and do I have to bake a wedding cake for a same-sex marriage if that violates my my religious beliefs? Using using one's own creative talents and art to to uh, celebrate a message that you disagree with. This terms case. Um, is going to have to do with a web designer whether they would have to be forced to design websites that promote um, issues that they disagree with. So that's coming back before the court, and I think we we regularly are seeing religious freedom issues coming up uh, before the Supreme Court. It's just you can go on and on. Yes, and there's all I, of the questions. I can questions.
0: see. Uh, I think sort of we're going to be continue to litigate and work through our law. In regard to the pandemic and mandates yeah. and shutdowns and all that and all of that's going to continue to get worked out through the court system that's that's not over and Absolutely. so there's going to be we're looking at the dobbs case which is perhaps the reversal of roe v wade we don't know but that's this session next session is what we're talking about where uh this next supreme court justice would actually rule on the cases um it's it's going to get harder not easier it's going to get more and more personal, I believe, to Christians. And I don't mean to sound doom and gloom, but I think that's just true. I think that, you know, as our worldview becomes more unfashionable, that we're going to have to, to fight for the rights to share our faith and to parent the way that we see fit and to, to just simply live our lives um, without compelled speech, as you were, uh, as you were mentioning. This is all going to be coming together pretty quickly, Carrie. I'm so glad that you could come on today. I think you really brought great points and shined the light, I think, in some areas and brought some expertise on this issue. Um, How can people follow you and, and what do they need to know about what you're doing right now?
1: Yeah, so uh, my group, JCN, has a website at judicialnetwork.com, um, but I'm also on Twitter at JCN Severino. That's where you can kind of keep abreast of things. Um, I blog at National Review Online's Bench Memos, but also kind of write at various different places, sometimes Fox News, sometimes other, uh, other outlets. So, uh, But if you follow my Twitter account, kind of keep you apprised of uh, when those, uh, those things are happening.
0: Well, and you're also a brave mama bear of the six kids, I believe, and married right. to the incredible Roger Severino. Uh, I think the left just is just cries every time they find out you've had another kid because
1: <laughs> <laughs> our oldest is just two years from voting age. So we're going to. We're starting to have, have an impact on that too.
0: Awesome. Well, we appreciate that and we appreciate you and God bless you. You're brave. You're, you're an amazing leader and we're just grateful to work alongside you and JCN. So thank you for being on.
1: Thanks so much, Penny.